This sermon is from Edgewood Baptist Church. You can find more information about us online at ebc-edmonds.org. Thanks for listening. series of sermons talking about three questions. Does God exist? Have you ever considered the existence of God? Why do you believe that God exists? Or if you don't believe that God exists, why don't you believe that God exists? So we we spent some time thinking about that question and looking at what the scripture says about the existence of God. And we've moved now to the question is, what is God like? Have you considered and thought about what God is like. Someone was to stop you on a street corner and say, what do you think God is like? What would you say? And if they followed it up by saying, and how do you know that to be true? Or why do you believe that is true? I think for many people, they spend very little time reflecting on the attributes and character of God. We sometimes assume that it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I believe about God. How is that going to impact my life? I believe that what we think about God, what we believe about God has a significant impact on our daily lives. Would you agree? I've seen it over the years of meeting with folks. I've changed the names on these stories. We'll call her Jill. She was referred to me, to talk to, because the night before she'd got tweaked on methamphetamines and drunk and had uh, all kinds of lacerations and needed all kinds of stitches and they didn't really know exactly all that went down the night before. And as I met and I talked to her about, about her life and the way she saw things, She said that she'd been to counselors and the counselors had told her that all of her problems went back to the fact that she didn't know who her earthly father was. And if she could just find her earthly father and hear him say that he loved her, then then she would find purpose and meaning in life. And to share with her about God, our heavenly father. But she was convinced that if she found her earthly father, that would end all of her worries. But when she found her earthly father, he said, why the blank were you looking for me? I didn't want you in my life. Now, now why do I tell you that? Her experience with her earthly father distorted her view of her heavenly father. And as a result of that, she was 
living in a certain way, a destructive way. When she came to understand that there was a God who loved her and that there was a purpose for her life, she began living differently, living with hope. Not, not all of the pain of her childhood instantly went away, but she lived differently because of what? A change in her view of God. He was abused by a relative, and he lived in anger, raging against the very, na- the very notion of God. He, in fact, told me that he had pledged his life to Satan. Now, for many people who say they pledge their life to Satan, they don't even necessarily know that they believe in Satan. It's just anything contradictory to God. And he was angry, and he was bitter, and he was on drugs, and he was in jail when I met him. I spoke with that gentleman for over two years we had contact with one another. He got out of jail for a period of time and he kept meeting with me. Didn't know that it really had much impact as he kept having issues and overdosing and and things like that. Didn't hear from him for a while. Was praying for him. One day the, the phone rang and he called to tell me that He didn't remember anything I really said to him in the two years I met with him. But for one thing, come to Jesus and there's hope. He said, I'm calling you today to say I gave my life to Jesus. Today he travels the world sharing Christ with others. His view of God has changed and his life has changed. She sang about the mercy and love of God. He sang beautifully. I was in a conversation with her, and she told me how much she loved singing. I don't know how I got to the subject, but I told her at the time that my children were afraid to sing in church. I don't even know how we got in that, on that subject. And she began to tell me that she grew up in a home where her father was the pastor and he would beat her if she didn't sing in church. And she told me of her journey to coming to see God for who he really was. A God of love, a God of mercy, a God of strength, a God of hope. was a missionary who wrote a letter to me who was sitting at a swimming pool overseas. And as she sat there, she saw the, the lifeguard ordering people around, don't do that, don't run, those kind of things. And she also saw a father playing with his children in the swimming pool. And she realized in an instant that she only saw God for so many years as just the lifeguard. 
just the lifeguard looking down and saying, don't do that. You better not do that. And she never saw God as a father, like that father in the pool enjoying his children. The way she did mission work changed when she had a more clear understanding of what God is like. The question comes, how do I know what God's like? I'm not asking that everyone just blindly accept God as he's revealed in Scripture, but I am asking us to consider what the Scripture says about God and see if we, we, in our personal experience, have come to know God. The first thing I would like to talk about in Scripture is that God is holy. He is set apart. He is pure. He's categorically different than we are. We've talked about this last week in his attributes, how he's transcendent and imminent. He's involved in our lives, but, but his ways are above our ways. There's a holiness to God. There's a set apartness to God. R.C. Sproul writes, the primary meaning of holy is separate. It comes from an ancient word that meant to cut or to separate. Perhaps even more accurate would be the phrase, a cut above something. When we find a garment or another piece of merchandise that is outstanding, that has a superior excellence, we use the expression that it is a cut above the rest. It goes on to write, when things are made holy, when they are consecrated, they are set apart for purity, unto purity. They are to be used in a pure way. They are to reflect purity as well as simple apartness. Purity is not excluded from the idea of the holy. It is contained within it. But the point we must remember is that the idea of the holy is never exhausted by the idea of purity. It includes purity, but is much more than that. It is purity and transcendence. It's a transcendent purity. There's, there's something, you know, one of, one of the things about God, trying to explain God without the power of the Holy Spirit, that's why we pray for the Holy Spirit to move among us. Are, are you praying right now that God would show himself to you? He's revealed himself in Scripture. His Holy Spirit testifies about him. One thing that keeps us from seeing God the way we should is our own sin. Another thing that keeps us from seeing God the way we should is our own woundedness. We, we pray to God to help us by removing the penalty of our sin, asking Jesus to be our Lord and Savior because we believe in one God who's forever existed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we believe that God sent his son Jesus, fully God and fully man, to die in the place of all that would put their trust in him. And that when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that means the boss of our life, the treasure of our life, the Savior of our lives, he sends his Holy Spirit to live in us. And we, we get to know God in a way that would be not possible if we didn't do something about our sin problem. That makes sense? But all of this, 
we pray, and I, and I was a little anxious about this sermon, because how, how do you talk about this? I mean, it's like trying to explain a, a rainbow to a colorblind person, or the Wi-Fi to somebody who's never had a computer. We need the working of God's Spirit within us as we illuminate and think about, as He illuminates and we think about the Scripture. Is that not true? Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. If you're here and you profess Christ uh, as your Lord and Savior, when was the last time that you were overwhelmed by the presence and majesty and holiness of God? Have you ever cried out? You see, when we see God for who He is, we look at ourselves and we say, I've got a problem here, right? Many, many times over my years of ministry, someone has said to me, you know, I don't feel worthy to go to church. I don't feel worthy to, to be in a building with folks where we, we pray about our lives and the presence of God is felt in the midst. But here's the thing. None of us are worthy to connect with God on our own. It's only through what Christ has done. Amen? We pray, we've been taught to pray by the Lord, our Father who, who art in heaven, what? Say it loud. Hallowed be thy name. We've been taught, don't take the Lord's name in vain. I, I think that's a lot more about how we speak of God, how we live, than, than it is merely about what we say if we hit our thumb with a hammer. We should never just flippantly use the, the name of God. I get that. But when we say that the God of the universe, the God who created everything, the God who's perfect and holy, has welcomed us into a relationship, has sent His Spirit to live in our lives, and people see us and we're not in awe, we're not wowed by that, 
We're more excited about what happens on a sports field than what's happening in lives who come in touch with the living God. People say, I don't think they really believe what they say they believe. In the way we live, don't we want people to see the holiness, the majesty, the power of the God that we serve? The Bible speaks of a holy God. Two, God is just and righteous. God is just, what does it mean? The Bible tells us that God is just. That means he is fair and impartial. It also means that he hates the ill treatment and oppression of people and of nature, which he has created. He hates lying, cheating, and other forms of mistreatment of others. The fact that God is just means that he can and will judge between right and wrong. He will administer justice in accordance with his standards. There is the moral argument for the existence of God that says within, in each one of us there is a sense of justice and morality and morals. Life doesn't make sense if there's no right or wrong at all, right? I'm preparing for the next series of sermons we're going to do in this fall. God willing, we're going to go through Habakkuk and we're going to talk about the question, why would a good and loving God who's all-powerful allow suffering? And we'll talk about that, reflect upon that. And I've been reading for that. And, and as, I've, and as I've, I've read about that, I read about injustices that happen in this world that are horrible. And I, and I simply can't accept that that's just the way it is, that we have evolved from nothing and we're heading to nothing and it really doesn't matter. Just survival of the fittest, kill off the weaklings. I don't believe that's true. I believe that there is a just God and judgment is coming. And I don't understand everything about it. But I want to look at my Bible and say, what does it say? In Psalm 7, 7 through 17, it says, Let the assembly of the people be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity, integrity that is in me. Now, Wait a second. Innocent, we object. Who is ever innocent? We've been taught there is no one righteous, not even one. We've been taught that even when we have done our best, we are at best unworthy servants, Luke 17.10. Although David is expressing himself as perhaps we would not, his words do not mean that he is perfect, only that he is innocent of the crime of which he is charged. This is very important distinction the kind that we make every day in the courts of law, right? So if I'm in court law, I say I'm innocent. I'm not saying I'm innocent of everything. I'm saying I'm innocent of the charge. Also, people like Spurgeon would say that the Psalms also, also, also often have a pointing to Jesus, who is the perfect one. All I know is this, that God is just. And when I think of the justice of God, I know that we're going to need his mercy and grace. Amen? Continue to read verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. 
And may you establish the righteous. You who test minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. That means that God is loving and kind, but the injustices of the world anger him. Last week, when I talked about the fact that God's not hangry, hangry being angry because he's hungry, or moody because he's hungry. Some of us get hangry times, right? God never gets hangry, but he does get angry, right? Not because he's not loving, but because he is. When I read of what some people do to their children, when, when I read of, of things like a pastor beating his daughter because she won't sing in church, it gets me a little bit angry. How about you? We cry out for mercy. Now, now let me say this. This can be misunderstood, this theological term. We believe that God is simple. Not in the sense that he's simplistic, but the fact that God isn't part just, part loving. He's fully loving, fully just. In his love, he's always just. In his justice, he's always loving. Amen? Verse 12, a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He is bent and ready to his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violent descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Psalm 33, 1 through 5 says this, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. In Luke 13, there's the parable of the persistent widow. It says there, and he, speaking of Jesus, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. What, what ought, we, ought we to do? Because we know God is just and righteous, when we see the unrighteousness, when we see the oppression of people, when we see the violence and the cruelty, we ought to what? Pray and what? Pray and not lose heart. What you believe about God, if you believe God is wimpy, you're going to lose heart. If you believe God is not loving, you're going to rebel and get angry. If you believe that God is loving, He is powerful, He is righteous, He is just, and there's some things we don't understand His timing on, it'll change the way you live. 
He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedingly. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let, let me ask you something. When you consider the evil in the world around us and you consider the righteousness of God, does it bring you to your knees to pray? How long, O oh Lord? Help me be an instrument of your peace. Help me change the world I live in. Amen? We'll talk about this more when we, when we talk about Habakkuk. But where has God placed us? What has he called us to do? Pray and do not lose heart. Third thing I'd like to call our attention to today about God is that God is love. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us... What's it say? Love one another. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. What's a propitiation? It means God had righteous indignation and anger towards our sin, but it's removed by the blood of Christ, who died in the place of all who put their faith and trust in him. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. I just want to back up to this. In this the love of God, verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest in us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So how does God show that He's loving to the world? The Scripture says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The cross is a sign of God's love. It's also a sign of his justice, right? And of his mercy. His justice because sin could not go unpunished. His mercy because it's offered to us even though we don't, don't deserve that as a sign of his mercy and his grace, which we'll talk about. But he, but he says the, the world will see his love will be manifest by the cross, and by people who've been changed by what Christ did. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. I was sitting with some students at a camp one time, and they went off to talk to their counselor, and the counselor came back to me and said, uh, I've never had this experience. He said, I shared with them John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And one of the young men said, who wants eternal life? Life stinks. And this is important for us to understand because you see in John 10.10, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it more what? abundantly. What we believe about God matters, but it's not just beliefs, it's experience, living in the fullness of that knowledge of God. For God is gracious and merciful. God does not give us the punishment we deserve. He takes the punishment on Himself and pays it for all who by grace put their faith and trust in Christ. God gives us what we do not deserve by crediting Christ's righteousness to us. Now, now let me say this. When you see the holiness of God, the, this, the splendor and the majesty, we're undone, aren't we? And, and there's no time that grace and mercy are something we deserve. You, you can't have obligatory grace and mercy. It's unmerited, it's undeserved. But by the goodness and kindness of God, He has been gracious to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 6.21 and 23 But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Now, I want to end by reading Psalm 103, our time together, and then I want us to have a sing together. But let me ask you, where are you with your understanding of God? How do you see God, and why do you see God that way? And if, and if you had no words to speak, but it was just your life that someone could look at, what evidence would there be that you believe that about God? Does that make sense to you, what I'm trying to say here? I mean, if we can sit and, and talk and use words, I believe this about God, I believe that about God, I believe God's this, I believe God's that, this, we might sound very good, but if we look at our lives and say, where is the evidence that, that you believe that God is holy? Where is the evidence that you believe He's merciful and gracious? Where is the evidence that you believe that He loves you. 
Where is the evidence in your life that you, you believe that God loves those around you? Where's that evidence in my life? Our world has told us it really doesn't believe, matter what you believe about God, but that's a complete lie. So here are the lies that I think are out there often. Doesn't matter what you believe about God. God isn't that holy. He's he's just like one of us, just, you know, he's kind of the 2.0 version of us. But but that's not true. God is so much more amazing than we are. God's less concerned about justice and righteousness now, so he'll just wink at my sins. He's not that worried about it. That's not true. Maybe you struggle today believing that God really loves. Maybe it's because some bad experience happened in your life. I'm praying that God would lift your eyes like he did those that I told you about in the beginning of, of the sermon. They saw God differently. They started to see God for who God was, and it changed them. But for many people, the issue is something they have done that they believe God won't forgive them for. If, God, if anybody knew what I did last night, last week, someone will say to me, they, they wouldn't want me at church. But God is not against his people for their sins. He's for his people against their sins. Amen? And the clearest of those sins. Oh, the joy of having our sins forgiven. Oh, the joy of knowing. Imagine, consider what it would be like if God wasn't loving. Consider what it would be like if God wasn't just. Consider what it would be like if God wasn't merciful. So as I read Psalm 103, I pray that it won't just be words, but that that it will be a reality that we will experience in our lives daily. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Did you notice what he said? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Not some half-hearted effort, but all of me. I want to bless his holy name. We talked about the name as the character of God, the set-apartness of the name and glory of God. How can we say it really doesn't matter what you believe about God? Of course it matters what you believe about God. He's asked us, To pray that his name would be hallowed, he's asked us to worship him only. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. Obey the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We're created to worship God. You can't worship a vain, abstract thought. God, if the scripture is true, is a reality. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, loving, just, merciful, gracious. My prayer is today as we leave here, there would be no one leaving who hasn't experienced the life-changing love of God in a real way in their everyday life.